Now, I thought it may be helpful as we begin just to give a quick reminder of what this whole Kingdom Come series is all about. From front to back, the Scriptures continually point us to this reality that every single person in this room and every single person outside of this room is a citizen of one of two kingdoms. We are either citizens of what the Bible calls the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, where sin is existent, where there is separation from the God who loves us and created us, where we are king, right? The domain of darkness, we are king of our lives, our desire, our wills, that's what comes first. Or we are a citizen of what is called the kingdom of God. A kingdom characterized by light and by life and a kingdom in which there is only one person on the throne and that is King Jesus. Domain of darkness, kingdom of God, one of these two. Now, what the Bible also tells us is that from Adam and Eve on, each one of us, all of us in this room, everyone outside of this room has also sinned and rebelled against God. Therefore, what that means is that every single one of us, our natural citizenship is not in the kingdom of God, but it's actually in the kingdom of darkness. Our sin has separated us from God. We are no longer connected to the God who created us and loved us. And there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to to, to be released from that kingdom. We are slaves to our sin, is what the Bible shows us over and over. The evidence of this is all around us. It's within our hearts where selfishness and pride, they battle against even the, the best of us, right? It's evident in our relationships where there is envy and there is frustration, there's anger. It's evident even in creation where storms cause mass devastation. We look at these things, injustice abounds where where death is the outcome of every life. The fruit of the kingdom of darkness is all around us. But when Jesus came, Everywhere he went, you read the Gospels, you're going to find it over and over again. Everywhere he went, he announced the arrival of a new kingdom. A kingdom that had been promised throughout the Old Testament. A kingdom that was not characterized by death and sin, but instead was characterized by life and peace. A kingdom where death and evil and sin were were dealt with once and for all. A kingdom where, where death was swallowed up by life. A kingdom where our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconnected in a relationship with God and therefore have also our relationships with one another restored. This was not a temporary physical kingdom like many of the people in Jesus' day were looking for. But instead it was an eternal kingdom that would first show up in his reign being evident in our hearts. Jesus announced a new kingdom. But there was a caveat. That kingdom... And its inauguration, its coming, would come at a very heavy cost that we could not pay on our own. It's the gospel story, right? We cannot free ourselves of our sin. We couldn't get rid of the filth of sin and be reconnected with God on our own. God had to do something for us, and that's exactly why Jesus came. We talk about this all the time because it is the only message that really matters. Jesus accomplished on the cross what we could not. He died for sin. The only way people could be transferred from this kingdom, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of God is to be forgiven. There had to be a sacrificial lamb. There had to be a perfect lamb that was sacrificed, taking the judgment of sin, the wrath of God that sin deserves, so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. 
He took the death that we deserved, and he made available spiritual life that is undeserved. A perfect description of this is in Colossians 1. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Colossians 1, verse 13, it says this. He, talking about Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what that means for every single one of us in this room is that if we want to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness, it means submitting our lives to a new king, Jesus Christ. Receiving the forgiveness that only he can offer. But that transfer from, the, from death to life is not just about us, is it? We find that there's a purpose in this transfer, that we would become more and more like Christ until we meet him face to face. And that's what you see in Colossians 1.21. It says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Where is that? The kingdom of darkness. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You say, Ryan, why are you telling us all this again? Well, the reason all of this is so important is that some of you in this room are sitting there, and I know it, you are constantly trying to figure out what is God's will? What is God's purpose for my life? The Bible says it's a lot more simple than you may think. God's will, God's purpose, as evidenced throughout the Bible, is that men and women of every ethnicity, of every social class, of every generation, would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. And then after that transfer, they would what? That they would grow closer and closer and closer in Christ-likeness so that they're ready to meet their creator face-to-face. That is God's will for our lives, our salvation and our Christ-likeness. Our neighbors' salvation and their Christ-likeness. Our friends and our family members' salvation and their Christ-likeness. That is God's will. So the question that we're trying to get at in this series is this. Does your life represent this purpose? Does your use of time, we've already talked about that. Does your use of money, does your view of work, do all of these things represent this overarching purpose that God has in life? Salvation. Christ-likeness, so that we're ready to meet him face to face. It's a very important question to ask when it comes to the topic that we will begin to tackle today, the topic of relationships. Because here's the thing, if what I have said this morning is true, what that means is every relationship in your life is an opportunity. You wonder, what's the purpose of my marriage? What's the purpose of us having kids? What's the purpose of my work relationship? What's the purpose of my neighboring relationships? What is the purpose for my relationship with the guy that I always frequent his restaurant? The answer is very, very simple according to Scripture. Your purpose in relationships is to help others to be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. And after they're transferred, for them to take one step closer and one step closer and one step closer to Christ-likeness so that they are ready to meet God face-to-face. That is our purpose in relationships. Now, I would ask you this morning, does your life and your relationships, do you look at your relationships that way? I will tell you this, the Apostle Paul and all the first disciples, you want to know why they changed the world? That was their view of relationships. Listen to what Paul says at the very end of Colossians chapter 1. He says this, 
Him we proclaim, talking about Jesus and everything he's accomplished. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present who? Everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, there is one thing that I'm going to give my life to in my relationships, and that is to making Jesus known and helping people become mature in Christ. Friends, I don't know that we have ever done a sermon series more important than this one. We've done a lot of sermon series, but I'm just telling you, this Kingdom Come series is what the Christian life is to be all about about. My prayer for you is that you would not be able to walk away from these sermons about our time and our money and our work and our relationships and just to be able to live life the same. I would say this, if you're going and you're living life the same, then you're not really dealing with what God is saying in these passages. And even worse than that, I fear a hardened heart. Christ's call is upon all of our lives. And today as we look at relationships There's a few things that we're going to look at, but today primarily what I want us to look at is relationships within the home. And even more specific than that, because we've talked about marriage, we're going to talk about marriage later this fall, but I want to talk about what it looks like to raise kids, the next generation, to love and live for Jesus. Now, as I say that, I realize that there are many of you in this room without kids, right? I know that that is true of many of you. And I don't want you to just close your ears to say, I don't have to listen to this because here's the thing. The principles that I'm telling you about relationships of parents with their kids, it applies to the relationships you have in your life too. And this morning, whether you realize it or not, you are called to play a role. Even if you're married without kids or you're single, you don't have kids. If you're in a church family, you have kids. The kids in this church family, you are to also play a role in bringing them up to love and live for Jesus. And so I would ask, don't close your ears to this. We all need the message that we see in this passage. What does it look like for our family relationships, especially that of a parent with a child, look like to be kingdom focused? Well, to begin, let's look at the New Testament passage, Ephesians chapter 6. There's a passage that he gives about family life right after he's talked about marriage. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. This is the word of God. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, I want to just stop there real quick. This is not going to be the primary point of this message, but let me just say this. Teenagers, college students, elementary age students that are in the room. This command is very, very clear. What he's saying is this, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, one of the clearest evidences of that at this stage in your life is going to be a life that obeys and honors your parents. You say, well, they don't deserve that. None of us deserve that, right? All of us are sinners. You put a lot of sinners into the home together, there's going to be failure, but that doesn't change what God's called you to. God has called you to obey and to honor. I love that word honor because honor is a decision that you make to treat your parents with dignity and with courtesy, to look out for their best interest. Teenagers, do you do that for your parents? Do you actually look out for their best interest? That's what they're instructed to do for you. But regardless of how they're doing that, do you look out for their best interest? He says, obey, 
honor your parents. We'll come back and we'll do an entire sermon series. I know the parents are like, let's do that today. No, we're going to focus on you. Verse 4 says fathers. And again, this says fathers, but what he's saying here is fathers, you're to lead the way in this. Moms, you play just as important as a role. He's talking to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now think about this. As Paul talks to parents, he could have said a lot of things, right? As a parent, if you're in the room, you know you need a lot of information. Paul could have told us uh, what to do to help our newborn sleep better, right? He could have told us how to get through the lottery system in San Francisco. He could have told us how to discipline our kids. He could have given all these different instructions. But instead, what does he do? He boils it down to this one point. This one thing he says, if you're not going to do anything else, do this. What does he say? Don't provoke them to anger. That means don't treat them in such a way that they're constantly in anger. They're constantly frustrated. But instead, what? Raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I don't want any of you to miss this. If you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son, and you're a parent, then what this is saying is that your goal as a parent should look radically different than the world's goals for their kids. It should look radically different. This, he says, is the priority, which means this. Number one, your primary goal in parenting is not to help your children get a great education. I think some of us look at our kids and that's, we see that's our primary role. My role is to help them have the best grades, go to the best college, to get the best music tutor, to have the most life experiences. He says, if that's your ultimate calling, you're missing it. Number two, your primary goal in parenting is not to help your children to become the greatest athletes. Or I might add, musicians. Or I might add, ballerinas. Whatever it is, right? That's not your primary goal. To help them to get trophies that are going to just gather dust in your basement. That's not it. Third, your primary goal in parenting is not to help your children have a great career. Your goal is not to make their life as comfortable as possible, to give them the the greatest idea of, of success and money and all those different things. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that any of those things, that, that a career or an education or sports or ballet or anything, I'm not saying that those things are evil, right? I'm not saying that. We do have a, a role in stewarding the gifts that God has given our kids for, for his glory. But I will say this. That if you add up all those things that I just said, the only thing you have is the world's definition of success. I mean, think about it for a moment. From a world's perspective, what is a successful young person? Is it not a a really talented kid that that does well in school, that that, that performs well in whatever talents they're using, that, that then goes to a great school so that they get a great education, so that they can get a great job? That's the world's definition of success. And yet, parents, you need to hear me this morning. It is not biblical. That is not God's picture of success for your kids. It's far from it. And I think there's a real danger here because here's what I see, not only in our church, but a tendency in my own life, okay? I'm not just talking to other people. This is my tendency and it's Rachel's tendency. Our tendency is to spend all of our time trying to help our kids get good grades, 
and become working hard in, in whatever uh, hobby they're involved in. And we give them video games and we want them to enjoy it and have pleasure. And then we cart them all over the city every waking hour to all their different activities. We immerse them in the world's definition of success. And then at the same time, we give little or no thought to their spiritual growth and development. If anything, we look to the church and we say, well, that's why I come on Sundays. Professionals, let them do that. Let the youth leaders do that. Let the kids workers do that. They're going to teach them the Bible. They're going to sing Christian songs. Friends, the church is not held responsible for your children. We want to be here to help you. We want to be here to equip you to do that. But we are not accountable for your kids. He's given this command to you. Instruct them, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our goal as Christian parents is to help our kids move one step closer to Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we cannot do that when we are immersing our kids every waking moment in the things of this world. If dads in the room are more passionate about teaching sons how to throw a baseball or understand a math problem than how to study God's word, I'm just telling you we're missing it, church family. Moms, if you're more interested in making sure your girls learn to to read well and are smarter than all the other boys, then I'm just telling you, you're missing it. Our call is to ultimately put Christ in front of them in such a way that they love and live for him and his kingdom more than anything else. I'll tell you this, there's been a startling picture that's been on my mind as I've been praying for our church family this week. And the picture is, is our kids on that day that matters most, standing before God, and they're holding all of these things that we have told them and that we have shown them are most important. But in that moment, what happens? All those things quickly burn away. The picture that terrifies me is our kids standing empty-handed before God because of the priorities that we have, their parents have had. Because we have not put his kingdom first, we've shown them exactly what matters to them and should matter to them. He's very clear here. From beginning to end of the scriptures, God says, raise the next generation. Ultimately, your role in that relationship is to raise them to love and live for me. You say, what does that look like? Well, that's why I also wanted us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6, in essence, is a, it's a breakdown. Paul is very general. He says, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, which that carries great meaning too. But we get a picture of what this looks like in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know Deuteronomy chapter 6 is actually one of the most important passages in all, in all the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. It's something that they would have memorized in their faith, in the Jewish faith. They, it was an important passage And yet it spells out what we are called to do with the next generation. First, it tells us what we are to teach them, and then it tells us how we are to do it. So what are we to teach the next generation? Number one, we are to teach them to know the true God. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What that is saying is we are to teach our kids, we are to teach the next generation that there is a God who has revealed himself through the scriptures as the one true God, which means this, we can't make him be whatever we want him to be. You see, in this generation, just like every other generation, there's a tendency for 
for all of us to try to make God fit our current cultural sensibilities, right? And so, for example, in our own culture today, we want a God who better conforms to our sexual ethic. We want a God that is more inclusive. We, we listen to Jesus' words when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we think, oh, we need a different kind of God than that, one that includes other ways to God. We hear what God says about our money and our finances and our, and our time and our, our resources and even our parenting, and it offends us. The true God of Scripture grates up against what we desire. It goes against us. And so we say, maybe we can just make this God more palatable to our current sensibilities. That's not what he says here. He says we are to teach the next generation to know the true God. The God as he has revealed himself to be. The God of scriptures. The God who is not only loving and merciful, but is also holy and just. This God, this picture of God that is not just fitting within the categories they want him to fit in. We are to teach them to know the true God, not the God we want him to be. But that's not all. We are also to teach them to love God. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. We are not just to teach our, teach our kids doctrines and truth. We're also to teach them worship. We're to teach them desire. We're to show them that Jesus and his kingdom are more desirable than money and possessions and popularity and recognition and job success. It's not just about doctrine that goes in the mind. It's about truths that penetrate the heart. We are to teach them not only to know God, but to love him, to make him the ultimate treasure of their lives. That's not it. Verse 13, we find another one that we are to teach them to fear and obey God. It says this, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after all the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. So in other words, in every culture, there are going to be other gods around that people are are tempted to worship. I will tell you this, our kids have plenty of God options around them. And the culture is telling them, worship this God and you'll find satisfaction. Worship this God and you'll find joy. But what does he say? For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you off the face of the earth. He's saying you need to teach your kids to fear and obey God. He's not just this grandfatherly figure in the sky. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And they are to obey him. Now that word fear, I think we sometimes get confused. We think how does love and fear of God go together? Well, to fear God is not just to be scared of God. That's not what this is saying. It's not like I'm scared of this storm that's coming. That's not the picture. This biblical picture of fear is that it's the recognition that that everything in the world revolves around God. That our good, that our, our, our very being revolves around God. He is alone, is God. He is utterly valuable. Therefore, why would we do anything in our lives to break that relationship with God? When we have opportunities to discipline our kids, really, that's what it's about. It's not about teaching them, well, you, you messed this up with me. You offended me. It's helping them to understand that when we sin, we are bringing about destruction to our relationship with God. They aren't sinning against us when they sin. They are sinning against our God. We want to help them to see his value, that the world revolves around him. And our greatest good comes in being connected to him, to obey and fear God. Last but not least, we need to teach them to trust God. 
verses 21 through 23. It says this, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out of there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Really what he's doing here, he's saying, you need to give your kids firsthand testimony of how you have seen that God is trustworthy. You need to show them through your own life and through your own experiences that that God is worthy of their trust, that he always fulfills his promises. And the greatest promise, of course, that he has made, of course, is the gospel. This Old Testament passage about Egypt and being freed from Egypt and being brought to the new land, it was pointing forward to the day where we'd be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. He says, give them firsthand evidence. Teach them to not only fear God and to love him and to know him, but to trust them with all of their lives. That's what he says. Now, how do we do that? We also are given that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's three primary ways that I'd lead us to look at this morning. If you're parenting or if you're an individual in this church that, of course, is called to raise up the next generation alongside us. Number one, we are to intentionally saturate their lives with the word of God. The greatest thing that you can do as a parent is to intentionally saturate saturate the life of your kid, the life of your family, your marriage, your parenting, all these things with the word of God. Look at verse 6. It says, in these words, and it's talking about the commandments of God, the word of God, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you see what he's doing here? He's painting this picture and he's saying, look, every part of your life, every single part of your life from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to bed, your personal life in your home at the gates, which was the place of business in those days, every single point of your life should be saturated with the word of God. Let it point to Christ. Parents, we have to be intentional at this because here's the thing. I can promise you this. The other people in your kids' lives, the majority of the people that they're going to be influenced by are not going to teach them to love and live for Jesus. That's a reality. So we have to be intentional with the moments that God has given us. We've got to be intentional about saturating them in the word of God, pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to the gospel. Your time as a parent is limited. Not only is it limited in the amount of years your kids are going to be in your house, You can ask many of the parents in this place where their kids are already off and in college or they're already out of the house, have their kids of their own. That time is limited. But even more than that, parents, your time is limited in a week. I mean, you think about it. The average student is going to spend 40 to 50 hours at school and doing homework. Lots of influences in those spheres. Then they're going to sit in front of a television or they're going to sit on social media for about 15 hours a week as the average student. You add that to the 60 or so hours a week that they're sleeping, and you realize I have very, very little time. I've got a unique opportunity. So that's why he's saying here in this passage, every opportunity should be marked with Scripture. 
We should try to have conversations about God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What each has done for us. We should look to have conversations in the car. We need to play worship music more often. I'm not a huge fan of some contemporary Christian music, but I'm telling you, there's some worship music that is staunch with theology, teaching about God. We need to be playing that in our homes and in our cars. When we discipline, we need to use that as a moment to share the gospel about judgment for sin, and yet how God has forgiven us. Every time that we're in a car, every mealtime, every nighttime, our rituals are perfect opportunities to read God's word and pray with our kids. For some people, they take this and they're intentional about doing a once a day or a once a week devotional time with your family where you gather together and you read the scriptures, you pray. Some even sing together. I don't know what this is going to look like in your life. You know your routines more than I do, but I'm asking you, are there, is there intentionality about making God's word a focus in your family? As a church family, we want to help you to do this. There are actually two opportunities this month for you that are parents to understand more about what it looks like to be intentional with your kids with the gospel and with about Jesus Christ. Two conferences, they're going to be on the screen. One is this weekend, and it's called Intentional Parenting. Uh, Many churches have come together to put this on. It's going to be at Dolores Park Church. We have information on our website, but we also have it with our kids' ministry. It's Friday night, Saturday morning where they're going to talk about what does it look like to be intentional about the gospel in your home. I hope that you'll make it. I think it's like $40 for the whole thing, for you as a couple. Use that opportunity. Another one is coming up at the end of the month. It's a a live video broadcast on September 29th and 30th called Parenting, Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. I love the guy that's doing this. His name's Paul David Tripp. And if you think, well, this is just going to be some gimmick that we can just follow. No, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to show us how the gospel impacts every part of our parenting. I can tell you this. Rachel and I are going to take up both of those opportunities. It's a live, the September 29th is a live stream, but you can watch it on demand the entire month of October. The church has purchased this for you. So if you want to take part in that, if you want to watch those videos, You can call us. We'll get you connected with how to get those. You as parents have a significant opportunity. The second thing that we're called to do as family is to prioritize Christian community. Not only do we saturate our family times with the word of God, but also we're to prioritize the Christian community. These commands were given in the context of a larger family of faith. So here's what I'm talking about. Am I talking about Sunday mornings? Yes. I'm talking about making Sunday mornings with a church family where we pour into your kid's life a priority for your family, more than your vacations, sometimes more than your activities, your extracurriculars. I'm saying it should be a priority, but I'm not saying that it stops there. Because when I say prioritize Christian community, I'm also talking about having people in your home where they can enter, your kids can interact with other believers, other believers' kids that have this same kingdom focus. One of the key ways that we do that here at First Baptist is through our community groups. You're going to hear a lot about that here in just a little bit. So I'm not going to go into that. But that's a key opportunity for you to open their lives to other Christian believers. It breaks my heart for many of you because I know deep down you want your kids to love Jesus. You want your kids to serve Jesus and to to follow Jesus with all their hearts. But the problem in your life is you haven't been intentional. And instead, you've consumed your kids' schedules with all these other things, and Christian priorities have fallen on the back burner. 
I know what happens. So I'm just telling you, parents, if you have kids, you need to prioritize youth camp. You need to prioritize kids camp. You say, Ryan, well, we, we've got these vacations. Our camps are already on the calendar. You can prioritize around that. So many of you say, well, I'm too tired to do community group. I, I have this and I have this. My kids have this and they have that. I'm just saying, your kids are going to know what you value more by what you do than what you say. You may say that you're valuing God's kingdom, but your kids see right through that if you're valuing other things, which leads me to the third thing. Live for the kingdom personally. Parents, there is simply no substitute for your kids seeing Christ firsthand in your life. Your kids will see what you get excited about. They will see if you get more excited about a a job success or about good grades or about that trophy they won. They will see if what you truly value by, by how involved in ministry you are. They'll see what you truly value if they see you actually reading God's word and spending time in prayer. They see right through our little veneers that we think we can put up with our kids. And then we wonder, after them seeing all of our priorities, all of our actions, we wonder why do our kids see very little relevance for the kingdom of God? It starts with us. We need to live for the kingdom personally. And then last but not least, I added this late. We need to pray like crazy. Because here's the reality. You all know this. We can't change our kids' hearts. Only God can change a heart. Has he given us a role to play? Yes, that role is very clear. But we can't change their hearts. And so as parents, we pray like crazy. If you're a member of our church, you don't have kids. Do you prioritize praying for the next generation of this church? Because I'm just telling you, there are plenty other gods that are coming after them, saying, worship me, live for me. Do you pray for our kids? Do you pray for their salvation? Do you pray that they'd grow closer and closer to Christ-likeness? I don't know what God's going to call you to do today, but my hope is that each one of us, whether we have kids or not, would be intentional, more intentional tomorrow than we were today about raising up the next generation to love and live for Jesus. For some of you that don't have kids, that may be serving within our kids' ministry or serving in the youth ministry, taking on a a student or or a kid and discipling them, coming alongside their parents in that process. Some of you parents, it may be going to one or both of those conferences. Setting aside, that is a priority over other things that you may or may not do. We can't control our kids, but we are called to raise them into, as much as we can into the instruction and discipline of the Lord. My prayer is that as we think about our relationships with those in the next generation, that they would be characteristic of the kingdom of the Son and not by the rest of what the world says is important.